This evening we're looking at Psalm 50, verses 1 through to 14. And the title of my sermon is The Sacrifice of Thanksgiving. In Psalm 50, the mighty God calls on heaven and earth to witness his pronouncements. First of all, he speaks to his sanctified people. As the Lord said in verse 5, Gather my saints together unto me, those that have made a covenant with me by sacrifice. After that, the Lord speaks to the wicked. Look at verse 16. But unto the wicked, God saith, What hast thou to do to declare my statutes? or that thou shouldest take my covenant in thy mouth. You've got the sanctified people, the Lord's people, in covenant with him, and you've got the wicked. We shall spend our time considering the Lord's pronouncement to his people, his sanctified people. First of all, we can consider who the mighty God is, who calls on heaven and earth to hear his pronouncements. Reading verse 1 again. The mighty God, even the Lord, hath spoken and called the earth from the rising of the sun unto the going down thereof. In verse 1, the first thing we read there is the mighty God, the Lord. The mighty God, the Lord. The most sacred name for God was not uttered by Israel of old. They considered it too sacred to say. And it was recorded only in part in the Hebrew Bible. When that part is transliterated into English, it spells Y-H-W-H, which is then written and pronounced as Yahweh or Jehovah. That's where we get Yahweh or Jehovah from. We get it when YHWH is filled out with consonants. More commonly, that most sacred name for God is written and expressed as Lord, with the capital letters as we see in verse 1. So what we have in verse 1 there is the most sacred name for God. The mighty God, even the Lord, or the mighty God, even Yahweh, or Jehovah. You'll see what I'm talking about if if you've got a King James Bible, and if you want to keep your finger in Psalm 50, but turn back to Exodus chapter 6. This is only going to work, I think, if you've got a King James Bible. That's not to say the other Bibles are wrong and King James is the only one that's right. You'll see what I mean. Exodus chapter 6, God was speaking to Moses and look at verses 2 and 3. And God spake unto Moses and said unto him, I am the Lord, capital letters there, 
And I appeared unto Abraham, unto Isaac, and unto Jacob, by the name of God Almighty, but by my name Jehovah was I not known to them. You've got Lord, capital letters in verse 2, and in the King James you've got Jehovah in verse 3. They come from the same Greek, uh, same Hebrew rather. It's the same word. And in other Bibles you've got Lord, capital letters in verse 2, Lord in capital letters in verse 3 and not Jehovah. I'm simply pointing out that it all means the same. It refers to God using his most sacred name. Lord in verse 2, Jehovah verse 3 are both vocal expressions of YHWH. Although Lord or Yahweh or Jehovah refers to the covenant name of God, more specifically it can be seen that Lord, at least in our passage, is a designation for the second person of the Trinity. This is where I'm going to with this. It's a designation for the Lord Jesus Christ, who is, of course, the Son of God. Let me show you what I mean again. In a prophecy about Jesus, one that we hear probably every Christmas time, Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7, Isaiah said, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. That son that is given is the Lord Jesus, of course. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God. The Mighty God, we have that in Psalm 50 and verse 1, but also in the prophecy of Isaiah, that Jesus is the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. Upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom, to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice, from henceforth, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform it. When confronted with that prophecy, Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 and 7, the JWs, who believe that Jesus is not the creator of God, but that he is himself a creature, will agree that the prophecy is about Jesus. They will concede that it is about Jesus. But then they will point out that in verse 6 it says that Jesus is the mighty God and not almighty God. They make that distinction. Yes, we know that's about Jesus, that prophecy. He is the mighty God, but he is not almighty God. And by saying that they, they try to make Jesus a lesser God. Try as they may to deny that Jesus is the creator God. We see very clearly in our passage this evening, Psalm 50, how blasphemously wrong they are, and that Jesus, the mighty God of Isaiah, of the prophecy of Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7, is the Lord, capital letters, he is Jehovah Jesus. 
And there's a big clue given to us in the name of Jesus. It means Jehovah is salvation. Back to Psalm 50 verse 2. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God hath shined. The following description of Jesus, Jehovah Jesus, the mighty God, is given in another prophecy of Isaiah. Isaiah 53 verses 2 and 3. For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of a dry ground. He have no form nor comeliness and when we shall see him there is no beauty that we should desire him. No beauty in Jesus, the the mighty God, that we should desire him. That's a description of how the unbelieving Jews saw Jesus. There's no beauty that we should desire him. They had hoped for an earthly conquering king who would appear in great pomp and state to deliver them from the Roman yoke and restore their nation to its former splendour and glory. As it turned out, Jesus came preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent ye and believe the gospel. Talking about that this morning, weren't we? That's not what they wanted to hear. They didn't want to be called on to repent and neither did they want to hear the gospel. They they wanted an earthly conqueror to kick out the Romans. And they certainly didn't want to see Jesus eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners. And ultimately, they crucified him. And they did so in accordance with the predetermined counsel and foreknowledge of God. However, to those who were trusting in Jesus, the mighty God, as their saviour from sin, trusting in him as the one who was wounded for their transgressions when their iniquities were laid upon him. And of course that's you, dear Christian. You believe that your iniquities were laid upon Jesus. You don't say there's no beauty that we should desire him. Rather you say he is altogether lovely. The beauty spoken of in verse 2 describes the majesty and the glory and the power of the mighty God. As it is written in verse 2, God have shined. The apostles Peter, James and John saw something of the divine glory of Jesus shining forth when they were up a high mountain with him and he was transformed before them and his face did shine as the sun and his clothes were white as light. Up on that high mountain they saw the something of the beauty of Jesus. Also there's that testimony from John in John chapter 1 verse 14 where he said, and the word was made flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Very different to he had no beauty that we should desire him. 
We too, who have been quickened or made alive and have had our eyes open to see spiritual truth in the scriptures, see the glory and the majesty, the beauty of the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who is full of grace and truth. And we see him shining through the pages of the Bible, even though for the time being, we see it through a glass darkly or through a mirror dimly. But we still see the light shining through. The light of that divine beauty. Even now, we who are trusting in Jesus as our saviour from sin, see the riches of God's grace displayed in his only begotten son. And when the home call comes for each one of us, we shall see him face to face and we shall shall behold his glory. For that, the redeemed of the mighty God, Jehovah Jesus, praise him, praise his holy name, now and forevermore. Secondly, God speaks to his sanctified people. We've seen that in verses 7 through to 15. In the immediate context, God was addressing Israel of old concerning their sacrifice. And look at verse 8. The Lord says, I will not reprove thee for thy sacrifices or thy burnt offerings to have been continually before me. So God was not rebuking Israel of old for neglecting to make their sacrifices, far from it. In fact, their burnt offerings were continually before him. What was being addressed was the attitude of their hearts. They were doing nothing more than regarding their sacrifices to God as some religious exercise, as something they had to do and they did it mechanically with hearts that were not contrite, hearts that were not broken, hearts that were far from God. Consequently, the Lord addressed their hearts when he said in verse 14, Offer unto God thanksgiving. If you just glance over to the very next psalm, Psalm 51, look at verses 15 through to 17, where David says, O Lord, open thou my lips, and my mouth shall show forth thy praise. For thou desirest not sacrifice, else would I give it. Thou delightest not in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. O God, thou wilt not despise. It's clear that even though God instituted animal sacrifices, they were never intended to be anything more than aids to spiritual worship. A worship that is in spirit and in truth. By that I mean that those sacrifices provided nothing more than an external cleansing 
For example, the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on someone who had become ceremonially unclean through touching a dead body. Well, that sprinkling of the heifer, the ashes of a dead heifer, provided an external cleansing that made the person legally, outwardly and ceremonially clean again. But it could never give peace to a guilty conscience. None of those sacrifices could. If they could, there would have been no need to keep offering them day after day, year after year. The whole system of animal sacrifices was fulfilled by the sacrificial Lamb of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. When he came into the world, he saith, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not, but a body hast thou prepared me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, thou hast had no pleasure. Then said I, Lo, I come in the volume of the book, it is written of me. In prophecy, it's written of Jesus. To do thy will, O God. Again, Jesus says, sacrifice an offering thou wouldest not. But a body hast thou prepared me? When Jesus, when the word was made flesh, when God was manifest in the flesh, the mighty God was manifest in the flesh. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, thou hast had no pleasure. There was no broken and contrite heart. Well, if there was no broken and contrite heart to accompany those sacrifices and are looking ahead to the Lamb of God who would come into the world, God had no pleasure in those sacrifices. All of you who are trusting in Jesus as your sacrifice from sin have infinitely more than an outward cleansing You have been forgiven all your sins and your conscience has been purged from dead works to serve the living God. As for Israel of old, those whose hearts were circumcised because there was a believing remnant, those of them who had circumcised hearts and not just circumcised flesh, They offered sacrifices as people who were looking ahead to the Lamb of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. And their faith was in the Lamb of God who would come into the world. The only way to have your sins removed as far as the east is from the west and for God to remember your sins no more is to show repentance towards God for your continual rebellion against him and to trust in the mighty God, the Lord Jesus Christ, as your saviour, believing that he took your sins away at the cross. For all of you who have already been baptised into Christ, having put on Christ, guard against having the same attitude of heart as those Israelites of old, who offered sacrifices mechanically, though their hearts were far from God. Yep, I'm referring to Christians here, people who are saved by the grace of God, whose hearts are circumcised. 
yet you can still have the same attitude of heart as unbelieving Israel of old. Professing Christians can very easily do what they do in Christian service, imagining, expecting that God will be happy with them, will be pleased with them, as if it was some way, if in some way God was indebted to them. And they were just ticking the boxes as well. As it's written in verses 10 and 11, For every beast of the forest is mine, and the cattle upon a thousand hills. I know all the fowls of the mountains, and the wild beasts of the field are mine. And in verse 12, the Lord said, If I were hungry, I would not tell thee. In other words, if it were possible for God to be hungry, he most certainly would not come to us for food. God needs nothing from us. Look at the second part of verse 12. For the world is mine and the fullness thereof. David expands upon those words in Psalm 24 where he says, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and all they that dwell therein. For he have founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters or the floods. Coming back to verse 14 where the psalmist says, Offer unto God thanksgiving. Whatever you do as a Christian ought to be done not seeking something in return or thinking that you and whatever you are doing are indispensable but it ought to be done as an offering of thanksgiving to God because he has brought you up out of a horrible pit and he has set your feet upon the rock whose name is Jesus we further see in verse 14 that it is written pay thy vows unto the most high Again, that is about rendering to God the sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving. For example, in Hosea chapter 14 and verse 2, it is written, Take with you words and turn to the Lord. Say unto him, take away all iniquity and receive us graciously. So will we render the calves of our lips. That's very different to reluctantly doing something in Christian service because you feel you ought to or because you're after some kind of earthly blessing from God. Rather, it's about crying out to the God of your salvation for forgiveness when you have sinned against him. And in return, you will, with God's enabling grace, offer the sacrifice of praise to him. That is the fruit of your lips, giving thanks to his holy name. Finally, coming back to verses 1 and 2, concerning the mighty God and his beauty. Can you see that those words are conveying to us something of the power and the majesty and the glory of Jehovah God? That he is the king of glory And also there's verses 10 and 11, which bear testimony to the fact that all things were made by him and for him. That he is the God about whom King David said in 1 Chronicles chapter 29 and verse 11. Thine, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory 
and the majesty for all that is in the earth and in the heaven is thine. Thine is the kingdom, O Lord, and thou art exalted as head above all. And because God is who he is, David went on to praise him and to give thanks to him with the following words. Now, therefore, our God, we thank thee and praise thy glorious name. Dear Christian, with a broken and contrite heart, praise the Lord with the calves or the fruit of your lips and with words of thanksgiving for so great salvation that you have through faith in Jehovah Jesus, the mighty God, the God of your salvation. Amen. The Lord bless thee and keep thee. The Lord make his face shine upon thee and be gracious unto thee. The Lord lift up his countenance upon thee and give thee peace. Amen.